Welcome to Connected Intelligence, a podcast about all the things we bring to work that aren't actually about the work. Join us in conversation about the building blocks that bring complex ideas to life. Not the code, calculations, or research, but the bonds between teammates, connection to your purpose, and the character that you build along the way. Welcome back. I'm your host, Sonia Senek, and today's guest is the Honorable Navdeep Baines. Minister Baines is the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at Rogers Communications, and most recently was the Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking for CIBC. Here, he was responsible for strengthening all capital markets and commercial banking with a particular focus on innovation, sustainability, and industrial sectors. He was one of the longest-serving federal ministers of innovation, science, and industry, where he introduced the most comprehensive innovation and skills plan for Canada in over three decades. He was also the parliamentary secretary to former Prime Minister Paul Martin, and he held the opposition critic portfolios for public works and government services, Treasury Board, international trade, natural resources, and small business. Before entering politics, Minister Baines was a distinguished visiting professor at Toronto Metropolitan University's Ted Rogers School of Management, an adjunct lecturer at the Master of Public Service program at the University of Waterloo, and he worked for several years in accounting and finance for the Ford Motor Company of Canada. Minister Baines has been a longtime resident of Mississauga. We talked to him about his family, his wife and two daughters, how to know when to step away from a job that you love, and his approach to being a role model. Please enjoy Minister Navdeep Baines. The Honorable Navdeep Baines, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sonia. I've been following the work you and your team have been doing at CDL, so it really is a privilege to be on. So I want to dig a little bit into your career background. You hold a fellow chartered professional accountant designation and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Windsor and a Bachelor of Commerce from York University. You've talked a lot about how growing up, you're very inspired by your father. For those who might not be familiar with your story, can you share a bit about your family history? Well, thank you for that. It it means a lot. I've been very blessed with loving parents. And I would say not just only my father, but my mother as well. And I'll kind of give you an example of how both of them have shaped a lot of my thinking, a lot of the decisions I've made and given me the confidence to pursue a lot of things. My dad came to this country in 1972, like many new immigrants, for better economic opportunities. He only had $7 to his name, so he came here with the basic minimal amount with the goal of finding a job and converting those hard-earned Canadian dollars into rupees and help support my grandfather, my aunts, back in a very small village in Rajasthan. So my dad's from Rajasthan. And very humble beginnings, very small plot of land. So he comes from a farming family. And so they were struggling. And uh, basically, this was the bet, the strategic bet that my grandfather made and said, go to this place called Kanda. And I heard you can find meaningful employment and that'll improve our quality of life. And so he came here in 72, didn't know anyone, had no family connections, and essentially just went from door to door trying to find a job and they basically would ask him do you speak english he would say yes can you work overtime he would say yes do you have experience he would say yes he didn't know the word no and what that meant and he ended up learning the cabinetry business from really great italian carpenters and they gave him a pretty cool name they didn't like bovinder they're like that just sounds foreign and exotic and confusing 
but from Vinder, we'll say Vincenzo. <laughs> and so Vincenzo arrived in Canada and started his Canadian Italian dream. <laughs> and uh, shortly thereafter, he started his own company. And, you know, our family was able to live the, what I call the middle-class dream. And we were very fortunate that way. So I learned from my dad, the importance of hard work, of taking risks and basically believing in yourself. And then from my mom's perspective, which I think is an important story is she's someone who cared deeply about faith and she believed in all the things that we've discussed around taking risks and working hard. She did so in a factory for a number of years, uh, working overtime as well to save up as much money to support not only our family, but our extended family as well. And she's from Punjab, but she would work the night shift. And she would do that deliberately so she could be at home in the morning to make my younger brother, so I have one younger sibling, breakfast. And more importantly, she wanted to make sure she could tie our distad, our judah, in the morning. She wanted to make sure that I felt confident going to school, that I was proud of my identity, that I felt confident. So I think those earlier experiences of watching my parents work hard, take risks, and what my mom did instill the pride in and being confident at a young age really helped me throughout my career and my life. And I try to do the same for my two girls. I've got a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. And I try to really learn from what my parents taught me and pass that along to my daughters. Incredible. I'm wondering if you ever had a conversation with your parents as you were growing through your studies and moving into your career about explicitly your value set? Because it sounds like you're so rooted in your values with your family. Is that something that you spoke about explicitly or did you just sort of observe them and watch and learn? I would say it's the latter. I observe them quite often. I idolize your parents growing up. So they're not perfect by any means, but they mean the world to me. And uh, they just had a big heart. They genuinely help people. They put this concept of Selah, giving back and helping others into action. And I saw it on a daily basis from small, random, kind gestures and acts of kindness on a regular basis. And for me, that started to really shape my thinking about what I wanted to do, not only in terms of doing well in school and landing a good job and, you know, buying a house and getting married, all those things that were taught at a young age, or at least I was, that mattered, but also just that notion of having a big heart and being kind and giving back. And I think I observed them a lot. We didn't talk much about it. It was just watching them on a daily basis that really inspired me. And you worked at Ford, and then you taught at the Ted Rogers School of Management and the University of Waterloo. What do you still carry with you from those early stages of your career in accounting and in teaching? Well, the importance of numbers and understanding (laughs) numbers, I would say, first and foremost, I really felt passionate about accounting and math and just felt comfortable around numbers. And so I pursued that career primarily because at a young age, I was told if you pursue accounting, you can land a good job. And putting again, my parents' story into context, my mom's dream job for me. So this just gives you an idea of kind of what their world looked like was working as a bank teller. And I'm like, when I was young, I didn't really understand, but upon reflection, it made a lot of sense. She would work hard the entire week in this hot cookie factory, working overtime. And then on a Friday evening before coming home, she would go to the bank. Its AC is turned on. It's <laughs> nice and cool. 
people are dressed reasonably well they smile and they take your money and then they give you some back to you know for my mom who needed it for groceries and other things and she said wow wouldn't it be amazing if my sons could work as bank tellers and so i think you know those experiences really mattered and so for me that kind of thinking and just trying to land a good job meant a lot so accounting made sense numbers made sense and what i realized pursuing a career in finance before i entered into ford and then becoming a financial analyst i just was really good at modeling at spreadsheets and candidly speaking that's helped me throughout my career even in government as we were looking at budgets and we were looking at supplementary estimates and even at the bank now where i work so it's been a really positive i would say journey for me because it's grounded me and given me confidence in something that I know I can go to when I want to prove myself or differentiate myself. I think folks that are listening who aren't finance people or accountants may think it's a super technical job and your background is so technical in that way. Can you speak a little bit about how understanding the technical back end and the the numbers and the finances how that ties to strategy. Folks may just hear accounting and think strictly numbers in a spreadsheet. Can you speak a little more about the rest of it? Absolutely. And full disclosure, accountants have personalities. Just want to put that <laughs> out there. I know they're just myth. You heard it here first. <laughs> and so there weren't too many accountants in politics. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> a lot of lawyers, for sure, but very few accountants. I think you can count them on my fingers, just a handful representing all political parties but i would say the path that i pursued is exactly with what you described before the cpa designation that we know today which is consolidated differing accounting organizations i pursued a certified management accounting designation and the key is management so when management is trying to develop a strategy trying to have a five year outlook trying to figure out where to allocate resources where to allocate capital where is the best return on investments etc all that is grounded and rooted in understanding numbers in the technical aspects of how to read a balance sheet how to read a pn how to understand a pnl and manage a pnl a profit and loss measurements and so i would say that part was very good to me because some people talk a big game and saying yes we're going to grow the company and we're going to see overall profitability but then they can't back it up with numbers or they don't have the grounding and understanding how capital is raised how capital is deployed and how to look at those issues in a thoughtful way so i think for me if you want to be successful in management if you want to be successful in strategy i've noticed those individuals also have a strong technical background with numbers they tend to bring both of those aspects to the table when making big decisions or thoughtful decisions and looking back now to the early stages of your career what advice do you wish you'd heard when you were just starting out because I've been thinking a lot about this one. I would say taking risks, getting out of your comfort zone. It is so easy to get comfortable with a particular role or a job or a routine. And you have to constantly challenge yourself. And maybe it's the way I'm programmed. I I get a niche very quickly to try something different, to try to build on what I'm doing, try to learn and grow and challenge myself. I'm curious. And I think in order to do that on a consistent basis you have to take some elements of risks. And again, some are big risks, some are small risks, some are more thoughtful, some are a bit you're going to the unknown, charting to the unknown and so it can be scary. It can be daunting, 
But I would say that's something that I now, when I reflect on my career and look back at in some of the decisions I made. So for example, when I was working at Ford Motor Company of Canada, and I'm in the automotive sector in a finance department, and I decided to take this big leap and jump into politics. Now, that was a risk, right? And so I think that was important. But then just going forward, even now in my day-to-day life with my daughters, I teach them that. I said, look, why don't you try different sports? Why don't you try to read different books? Why don't you try to make different friends? Just having that kind of outlook and getting out of your comfort zone is also very, very important because I've seen a lot of my good friends get into a routine, get into a rut, and they are dealing with a lot of issues. Their self-confidence is eroded. They're dealing with issues around mental health, around depression, anxiety, frustration, and then a lot of regret. And the time is very precious. And when you look back at it, you're like, I spent X number of years stuck in this particular role in this company doing this particular project. And it was easy. It was comfortable. But people that I talk to, including myself now, I think just making sure that you're able to deliberately challenge yourself on a regular basis is so important. And do you remember a moment that motivated your transition from that financial role to politics? Was there a specific moment? Was it a series of things where you thought, you know, you mentioned you had that itch. What was that feeling and what was that final push? So it's definitely a series of things. You know, I was involved in a local soup kitchen. I was helping kids play basketball after school so they could, you know, have a better environment uh, and not be around the wrong crowd, so to speak. After school homework club initiatives to help kids with uh, additional assistance with their homework. And so I think all those particular kind of extracurricular activities that I was involved in made me very conscious of the fact that I enjoyed that much, much more than I did preparing the budget, the business plan at Ford, which was exciting in some ways, but not the same level of joy and satisfaction I would get from those types of initiatives. And so I think it was a combination of a few years of actively being involved at a local level. Nothing too serious, just after on a Friday or on the weekends or during the holidays, just getting involved in different initiatives, it became quickly apparent to me that that path, that type of work, that type of engagement meant a lot more. And I enjoyed that immensely. I felt that I had a better meaning and purpose. And then it goes back to, again, my experience as a young kid watching my parents. I could see myself trying to emulate some of the things that they did. And so I would say it was just a series it wasn't like that one day I woke up and watched a JFK documentary, like, that's it, I'm going to politics. But in truth be told, I really didn't take too many political science classes. Remember, my background was in business. I did my undergrad in business, my MBA, I have an accounting designation. So I didn't have the legal background, didn't have the political science background. It was fairly naive when it came to understanding the different orders of government and what they were responsible for. But I did enjoy working with people, helping people, and being involved locally in the community. So you were one of the longest serving federal ministers of innovation, science, and industry. What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about the world of policy and politics? Oh, the biggest, I think, misconception is not truly understanding what politics can do to have a real impact on people's lives. It's such an important platform. You know, if you think about it, uh, right now, post-politics, I'm involved in a 
charity that I'm working with some of my friends. And we're going to try to help a few people and support a few causes. But that's very limited in its scope and impact. If a government says we're going to have a policy that's going to provide fixed income for low-income earning families, that's a big deal. And that profoundly impacts thousands, if not tens of thousands or millions of people. And so I think people don't fully appreciate that about politics. There's this misconception that it's about power and it's about people that maybe are have massive egos and that do this so they can see their name or picture in the news or in the media. But I think what people don't fully appreciate is how the right leadership can have such a profound impact on your quality of life, on the decisions for future generations versus bad leadership. And so I think the major misconception is not truly understanding how important government is in our lives and the impact and role it plays in shaping how we live. If you had to look back and pick the top three moments of your political career as Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, what do you think they'd be? So I'll take a step back before I talk about innovation, science and industry. For me, one of the special moments was supporting same-sex marriage. And this was in 2005. So now it seems like not a big deal, right? But almost 20 plus years ago or 20 years ago, it was like a big deal. Huge deal. And I mean, not to minimize some of the challenges people still face today. There's a lot of issues that same-sex couples deal with. And, uh, but back then it was just the fact that they were not even given the legal opportunity to get married and, or their marriage to marriage to be recognized by law. So for me, that was important. And it stood out as a special moment because it wasn't just about me. It was about my family again. My grandmother, thank God she's still alive. She would pick up the phone quite often because when I took a public position to support same-sex marriage, many people were unhappy for a whole host of reasons. And some of them got a hold of our home number and they would constantly call. And my grandmother would, you know, listen to the conversation I'm having with my parents and with some of my close family members and friends, but she never participated in the conversation much. She just listened and observed but when people start calling the house, she would pick up the phone time to time. And then one day I heard her yelling, saying, it's because of his friend Carter. And she put down the phone. And I said, Grandma, who's Carter? She was, I don't know. You're doing the right thing to help your friend Carter. So I thought, you know, let people know. I said, you mean the charter? The charter rights and freedoms? She goes, yeah, something like that. So what was so amazing was I had that special moment with my grandma. She didn't fully appreciate the issue. I mean, we had a better conversation afterwards. It was tough for her to understand because of her upbringing. But it was special because it was a bonding experience for us. Like, think about it. From my parents who struggled with that issue a bit to my grandma who didn't even really understand the issue, chose not to. And, you know, now if you talk to her, she's like, yeah, what's the big deal? And that meant the world to me. And so that was a special moment. And coming back to innovation, science and industry, I think, Again, helping people that fall through the cracks, uh, talking about my parents' journey and our humble beginning here in Canada. For me, supporting Indigenous communities with internet connectivity was a big deal. Many of these young Indigenous kids had really no hope 
And at least the internet and connectivity provided them with some hope. They could learn stuff online. They could do business online. They could see a whole new world online and have hope. And I remember meeting with some indigenous leaders and they said, this was a matter of life and death for some of these kids. And how important dealing with this rural divide was between, you know, urban Canada and rural Canada. And so I think the efforts we put on connecting indigenous communities and getting them access to high-speed internet was a point of pride. And I would say, again, with a bias of having two young girls, initiatives like that, supporting coding, for instance, was important because it's about digital skills and preparing ourselves for the new knowledge economy. What was so special for me was the coding program itself was targeted towards helping young girls in particular that would discount themselves or self select themselves out of a lot of these STEM-related initiatives because they felt, well, you know, math's tough, science is tough, and whatever kind of biases they had or advice they were given. And so it was incredible to see a lot of young girls get involved in the coding program and essentially pursue a career in STEM. And so I would say those are the three kind of things that stand out in, in my career. I mean, we did a lot around developing green industrial policy, the mines to mobility about leveraging our mining sector and building EVs. And you're seeing now record number of investments in Canada, which is not only good for the economy and jobs, but also the environment. So that was a point of pride in terms of industrial policy. But personally, mm-hmm. the impact on young girls, Indigenous communities, and dealing with you know basic human rights around same-sex marriage definitely stand out. Your three moments are all about enabling opportunity for other Canadians, which is Amazing. You also introduced the most comprehensive innovation and skills plan for Canada in over three decades. Would you mind sharing a bit more about the core elements of the plan with our listeners? And also, why was this such a priority for you? So in 2015, when we formed government, Canada was struggling at that time. So a lot has changed since then because of the pandemic and because of geopolitical issues that we're facing today with and also high interest rates and high inflation. But in 2015, Canada was just struggling with modest growth. And I'm saying just slightly hovering above 1%. And historically, Canada had also seen to be a laggard on productivity-related issues, particularly vis-a-vis the US. So when we came in and formed government in 2015, the prime minister said, we need a robust economic agenda We need strong microeconomic policy, and we need an industrial plan that will set us up in this new knowledge economy. And so that's why there was so much focus on innovation, because that was key to unlock that potential. But innovation is not just done by governments. It truly is all hands on deck. You need private sector to think differently, step up, make the investments. You need to create a culture of innovation, essentially, that also includes civil society as well, and just a better understanding of what this means. And fundamentally for me, I've always explained that innovation is challenging the status quo, just finding solutions to new problems. So it's not always about the latest iPhone. It's just about how can you do things better and how can you um, have positive impact? So I would say that was the impetus and the focus. And then the key elements of the innovation plan first and foremost was people. Like if you want to truly be an innovative economy and you want to improve your productivity and you want to compete, it all starts with people. And so after a lot of consultation and speaking to experts and going to other jurisdictions, like we visited South Korea, we went to Israel, we went to the UK, the US, Germany, 
and et cetera, et cetera. So we went to a lot of different places to understand what they were doing around innovation policy, what they were doing to help improve their productivity and look at research and development. And so I think it came down to the conclusion that you've got to make sure you have a not only a well-educated population, but a population that thinks about lifelong learning. So that's going back to my early point about taking risks. We need a mindset here that you never graduate. Yeah. You're always learning, right? And so we invested in coding programs that are highlighted to work integrated learning, to getting people out of the classroom into the work environment and take their learnings there and then bring back what they learn into the classroom to generate some of that innovation, to mid-career reskilling opportunities for people, again, that need to take that risk and say, look, I'm doing this job, but this job may be obsolete in 10, 15 years. So how can I pursue a path where I can do more meaningful work, get paid a better wage, and have more opportunities? And then we also leverage immigration. Remember in 2015 and 16, there was a lot of noise around Mr. Trump, Donald Trump, and the Brexit debate was alive in a while. And so we said, look, Canada's open. Canada's open to investments, Canada's open to ideas, and Canada's open to people. And so that focus on just developing talent and attracting top-tier talent was critical. So that was the first component of our innovation and skills plan. The second was around capital. And I firmly believe if you bring in the talent, the capital will follow. And that's exactly what happened, right? People invest, and companies invest in particular, where the talent is. And so they're like, okay, Canada, I can get top-tier talent, so I'm going to invest in Canada. So we saw a lot of foreign direct investment in the technology space increase substantially. And we also put forward programs like uh, Vicky, the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative, which is a fund-to-fund model to support VCs here in Canada to, again, in, provide that capital up front to... Your, your friend Vicky, of course. <laughs> That's right. You got it. And just to help companies get the essential capital they needed to jumpstart their ideas and, and to not go to the US or other parts where capital was available and not here in Canada. And then third, I would say is scaling up companies. We always get excited about the Nortels and the Blackberries, but the Shopify's, right? And then how do you create more Shopify's and have that kind of mindset? We have these incredibly ambitious global companies, but located here in Canada. And I think that was important. So those were kind of the three major elements of it. It was, it was based on a focusing on people, lifelong learning, making sure that the right companies had capital at the right points. And there was different programs we had as they started to scale up and then trying to create world-class companies here because that would just help the ecosystem. You could have people in their, I know, VP director level that decide to support and mentor a smaller company and help them scale up. And so that kind of network effect was really important. And embedded in that was a, a number of programs that were very special from artificial intelligence and focusing on that and first pan-Canadian AI strategy we had in 2017 to work we did on IP and data and the digital charter. But fundamentally speaking, those were like the main pillars around people, capital, and scaling. And you've been so heavily engaged in the world of innovation and entrepreneurship. What do you think is one of the most important ingredients in a successful tech ecosystem? People. For sure. I think uh, you can have to generate the ideas, to scale those ideas, you need incredible people. So I think 
again, Canada's uniquely positioned, especially in a world where countries are becoming more and more inward looking, where populism is on the rise, nationalism is on the rise. There's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. We're fortunate in Canada that we don't see the same issues. It's relatively speaking, still a fairly non-partisan issue where there's a consensus. It's a fragile consensus, but a consensus nevertheless that immigration is good. It's good for economic prosperity and that we need newcomers. So I think that's a unique value prop. So I think going back to what's needed, I think that's the key part. And then the network effect. When you have now in Canada, so many technology companies that we describe as unicorns that hit a valuation that was significant. And obviously things have corrected in the past year or so, but at least clearly it's evident that you can scale up in Canada that you can not only have a good idea, but you can take that idea and you can commercialize that idea and be a true global champion and be located in Canada. So I think those are the key elements of it is it's just that mindset and that ambition now exists and that network exists in Canada and that we have just access to not only incredible Canadian talent, but global talent as well. You mentioned mindset. We actually have a quote from the Hill Times from a little bit ago where you said, innovation is a mindset. It's about challenging the status quo. It's about finding solutions to problems, but fundamentally innovation is about being better. Can you share a bit about how you've seen entrepreneurs and startup founders adapting to be better within the innovation ecosystems in Canada and around the world as you traveled into so many different countries and different innovation ecosystems? So I think the mindset is, well, I can speak to one segment. I'll speak to kind of something that I've noticed, which is pretty special in Canada. And I hope we can find a way to nurture it and just build on what I said before. If you look at newcomers, they risk a lot, right? I mean, we talked about my family's journey, but this is the story of Canada, except for Indigenous people. It's just waves of immigrants coming here, taking risks. And the mindset of leaving your country of origin, coming to a place, starting from scratch in many instances, the inherent mindset is, I'm going to succeed at all costs. I don't want to go back as a failure, right? I've come here and I want to do everything I can to succeed. So just if we can bottle that mindset, right? And so, and nurture and support that mindset. And so what I've noticed is a lot of companies emerging with immigrant founders that uh, come here and aren't like my parents, aren't settling for entry-level jobs. And mind you, the situation is different. My parents came in as part of the labor class, I would say lack the education. And now what we're attracting are people that are primarily much better educated and have come here and said, okay, look, I may have a difficulty getting my accreditation or my degrees recognized or my credentials recognized, but I'm going to not do a, you know, and we hear the story of the doctor driving the taxi, mm-hmm. but there are many stories now of, of students, especially international students who go to school, come together and come up with an idea. They either have an engineering background or computer science background, and they're off to the races. And so I think that's where Kenda can truly differentiate itself. And that's what I'm seeing. It's that mindset of taking risks and which is really unique to Canada versus other countries, right? I think the only other comparable would be the US where there's a lot of newcomers there. If you look at all the, the major tech companies, a vast majority of them are founded by immigrant founders. And even if you look at the leadership in technology companies, they again are 
tend to be people that started their careers in other parts of the world. And so it's trying to replicate that in Canada that I think is so important. It can sometimes be a challenge to know when to stop something. I'm wondering how and when you knew that it was time for you to step away from public office. <laughs> oh, it's a great question. It's not an easy decision, especially because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we had this made in Canada strategy. We're uh, ramping up on ventilators. We're using construction house wrap for medical grade gowns and Canadian uh, businesses, particularly in the manufacturing sector, we're doing so much. But during that time period, as you may recall, and many of us do, we were uh, forced to live at home and not see others. So for me now, for someone who's been in politics for a number of years, traveling a lot, I'm having breakfast with my daughters and my wife. I'm having, maybe not lunch because you're working through lunch, but in the evening, we're having conversations or watching movies together. And I spent quite a bit of time with them because we were forced to. Right. Like I couldn't go out. So you got to stay at home and spend time with your family. And I realized very clearly how much I was missing. My daughters opened up, started talking to me about like everything under the sky, like how they felt about school, how they felt about life, how they felt about boys, like everything. And I just realized, as scary as that sounds, but I realized like I just wasn't part of their life. I was the nice dad that came on the weekend watched a movie with them, maybe did an event with them, or talked to them over the phone for a few minutes during the weekdays. But it was never, I wasn't around for them when they wanted me around. It was around my schedule. And so it just dawned upon me and my wife and I were talking about this, like as much as I love serving the public, as much as I love being in politics, my daughters who are now older ones in high school, the young ones in grade seven, they only have a few years and they may end up going off to, you know, a different university outside of Mississauga. And so I may not see them. So these are precious few years that I have with them. So for me, it was a no-brainer. And the pandemic helped crystallize that, that I got to be more present and spend this valuable time with them while they're still at home before they take off. And so that was the main rationale. It wasn't easy. I remember speaking with the prime minister. He tried to, at the beginning, convince me a bit. But he realized when I started talking about my girls, how much they mattered to me and what this was about. And uh, we talk a lot about family. He's got his son, Xavier, and my daughter, Nanki, are born on the same day. And so we always exchange notes about the kids' birthdays and just about family. And uh, he was very supportive. So that made it easier. And, uh, you know, I look back at it with no regrets. It's been magical to be home with the girls. You know, and I'm also very blessed that I had this amazing run in politics, particularly as a minister on in leading our innovation policy, our industrial policy, it was pretty darn cool. And just going back to the beginning of our chat, when you were mentioning that you being able to observe your parents and see them as role models and see them in the world, do you feel like being able to be a little bit more present and be around for those small moments is really the difference maker for you? Absolutely. I feel better as a person. I've got better perspective. I'm happier healthy. I spend more time taking care of my, you know, well-being. And it wasn't even my girls, my wife too. She's a remarkable woman and she did a lot of the heavy lifting. So I think marriage is always, there's a give and take and it's a partnership. So it was my turn also to make sure that she's able to explore things that she kind of put on hold for me. 
So yeah, all of the above, I think, I think uh, resonated with me. That's why I have no regret. And I'm just so blessed that I was able to leave on my own terms. It's tough in politics to do that. It's not often that people get to either there's, they lose an election, either there's a scandal or they mismanage a file. And so I was very fortunate to be able to leave on my own terms and do so for my family. I always say a secret to a good party is knowing when to leave. So it feels like, <laughs> feels like you did that. I want to ask, you were the first person of color to be appointed the Minister of Innovation. You were also the recipient of the Black Business and Professional Association Harry Jerome Award for Diversity. You're such a role model to so many folks. How do you manage this responsibility on top of building your family, your career, and growing as a person? I approach it differently. I just think that it's just important to obviously, by example, and continue to break down some of these barriers, dispel some of these stereotypes, and try to be the best role model possible. But just live a good life. Just be kind, be nice, be thoughtful, be respectful. I do my best to try to support and mentor as many people as I possibly can. People reach out to me and I deliberately make a point of responding. If I'm on the road and I can't meet with them in person, at least have a phone call. Because it means a lot. It meant a lot to me when I was in politics and started my career at Ford. And I reached out to some people who I looked up to, who I admired, and they made the effort to talk to me. And I realized how impactful that was. So it's just, it boils down to some basic, simple things like that. You know, we're all busy in our lives. We have a lot on the go. But to, to make the time and effort and say, sure, if you want to have coffee, I've got some time. Do you want to have a quick chat? Let's let, tell me what's on your mind. And I think that small investment of time and effort and energy goes a long way. And, you know, even though I've been very fortunate to hold the positions that I, or to have held the positions that I pursued in politics and in the private sector, I still go to rooms where I stand out, where I'm still the exception, not the norm. So we have a lot more work to do. And that's why I continue to talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity on a regular basis. And I try to use my platform as a former politician, as well as the current place where I work at the bank to talk about these issues. Again, to not only lead by example, but to help shape decision-making in corporate Canada and within public, in the public policy sphere. You're now Managing Director and Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking at CIBC. How has that transition been for you from public office and public service to your role at CIBC? In many ways, it's been fairly seamless. Because as we've been talking about the importance of helping technology companies scale and grow here in Canada, the platform at CIBC is pretty neat, where they spend a lot of time on the new economy, and they focus on supporting innovative companies, and they have a very impressive franchise called Innovation Banking, which is all about venture debt and supporting technology companies. And on, at Capital Markets, where I'm located, we support our clients through their sustainability journey and helping them with this energy transition that's taking place. So I did this in government, very much talking about growing the economy, helping companies scale, put forward different policies and different programs to assist them with the conditions to succeed, to grow. And now I'm doing similar work at the bank, just using a different platform, a much smaller platform. But uh, so I think that part was a very... Like it, it felt normal, seamless, as I mentioned. But I would say that for me, what's also been pretty special about joining the bank and being in the private sector is I've got my weekends back. 
Right. I don't have to like cut like ribbons and go to events and do all that kind of stuff on the weekends. I can go bowling with my daughters or mini putt or take my daughter to a basketball game. That's pretty darn cool. And I love the privacy. Like no one's really shouting at me or yelling at me at the grocery store or <laughs> telling me off. Like they just, if somebody looks at me and says, oh, it's your fault. I said, look, I left two years ago <laughs> and your local MP is such and such. And uh, please direct your comments that way. Right. You know, like, yeah. so or I, call I, my grandmother. <laughs> that's right. You got it. She'll tell you, she'll put you in your place. And so I think, I think that aspect there has been something that I really enjoy. I, I love, I was a very private person before I entered politics. And to have that kind of environment again, to be in that environment again, where I can do anything with my kids and my wife and feel relatively safe. And, you know, the odd person recognizes me, but I would say the vast majority of people I meet, the vast majority, if not everyone, are very polite and kind. And, you know, if they have questions or they are inquisitive, or even if they have disagreements, you know, in typical Canadian fashion, they're pretty cool about it. Now what some of my colleagues are experiencing with the hate online or what we're seeing in, you know, different public events. So I don't miss that part. And sadly, it's gotten worse since my departure. What is your single biggest hope for the future of Canada? Oh, my single biggest hope. I think as a country, we can be a place where we truly are the most inclusive society on earth. With all the conflicts we're seeing around the world, with all the challenges we're seeing with different communities engage in some sort of conflict. In Canada, by and large, we have something very special, but incredibly fragile. And my hope and my wish, and especially as a father of two young girls, is I want them to grow up in a place that looks like the UN assembly <laughs> when they go to their classroom or go to work, but feel like it's the normal. It's the norm and feel normal about it. And just be in such an environment where we don't judge people, but we work with people. Be in an environment where we don't accept people, we celebrate people. You know, be very open-minded, not race to judge others. Genuinely think about what others are thinking about and what others are going through. I think that kind of inclusive society for me is something that I, I have high hopes for Canada. And we're headed in the right direction. We, it's a bumpy road, but I think uh, we can do it. And for those listening that may be early in their career or mid-building their career, what advice would you give them to help make that vision of Canada a reality? Step up. You know, don't be a silent observer. Don't take things for granted. Speak up and get involved in different ways. It could be at work. It could be with your family members. It could be obviously if you choose to pursue public life, but there's just so many ways to have an impact and make a difference, but you got to step up. And I think that would be the big takeaway. Welcome to The Debrief, the meeting after the meeting. We're joined by your host, Sonia Senek, and a couple of her friends from work, Amar Kaur and me, Elizabeth Chim. Hello. Hello, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. What a great conversation with former minister Navdeep Baines. You think he'll also help me with my mayoral campaign? <laughs> a fantastic candidate to advise you on your <laughs> mayoral campaign. What I found amazing was Minister Baines' campaign included his grandmother answering phones for him, directly speaking to the public. 
<laughs> Do we think that Nadif's grandma went through PR training, though? For sure. I feel yeah. like there was probably a slide deck involved. I'm picturing a landline as well. I don't know why I'm picturing that she's by a landline. <laughs> it has to be a landline. I think it, it this this whole story just works much better with the landline. <laughs> I'm going to lean towards no PR training. I think full trust was given to her. You're right. I would have loved to have heard some of those conversations she had directly with people because it sounds like he had a really interesting pathway to get to his spot. Exactly. And something that I really resonated with was just like how grateful he is to his parents. I just find it super heartwarming. Like I'm super grateful to my parents for coming to Canada. They came here. So I think my father was placed in Edmonton and he likes to tell the story about how it was so cold his ears fell off. You tell me that as a kid, because he had this scar on his ear and he says, see, that's where they fell off from. That's how cold Edmonton was. <laughs> and neither of them like really went to school. My father didn't go to school at all. My mom only had like a little bit of elementary school. So I'm the first person in my family to go to post-secondary. And how did that feel for your parents as they've seen you grow from being a student to pivoting into your career? It's a little bit of a complex where you want to keep making them proud, but being a Canadian, you really do have to kind of pave your own pathway. I was definitely a bit of a rebel. I think a lot of second generation kids do this to their parents. Like it's a weird feeling of thankfulness, but also a bit of guilt. You know, your parents give up a lot for you, especially I feel immigrant parents. So this is very similar to um, Minister Bain's story where his parents wanted him to be a bank teller. That was like a good job. That's how you were set up. And so I remember as a kid, my father told me, you should be a nail technician. And so I'm Vietnamese. And so Vietnamese people are somewhat known for having nail salons. I was actually upset by it. Right. And no disrespect to any kind of nail technician. It's a beautiful craft, but it was just something I was never interested in. And so it felt like he didn't really see me. And so eventually I did realize that he was just trying to give me an opportunity for me to succeed the best that he knew how of like, that's how he's seen Vietnamese women succeed in North America. It took me a long time to realize that it almost gave me like a bit of a complex. Honestly, I never get my nails done now. <laughs> it's interesting now as time's gone on, you have new context for the comment. Yeah. I've shared a bit about my parents and like our immigration story. From like the education perspective, both my parents had uh, PhDs in biochemistry when we came to Canada with the hope that they'll they'll continue in a similar field. And when they arrived, they were basically told that the PhD would not be honored. Um, they would have to either redo it, start from scratch um, or figure out something else. So at the time, my dad took up a security guard position and in the movie Turning Red, if you see the security yes. guards in 2002, that is when we came to Canada. My sister and I are convinced that that security guard is our father. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom, PhD in biochemistry, teaching in India uh, to students, has now come here and never thought that real estate is what she would be doing. So she did the course. She got the license. Um, and then a year later, they decided, you know what? No, you want to do teaching. So she decided to do her bachelor's of education we picked up everything, moved to Hamilton because she got accepted into Brock University. 
And the story that my dad still tells is when we came to Canada, the immigration system we came through, you need to show $15,000 in your bank account. And dad's like, that $15,000, if I make that back, like I finished that that year, basically, that was our expenses of that year. And if I make that back, everything else on top of that is bonus. And we have built this entire life in Canada. And that's sort of the story he always tells. It's so heartwarming here. (laughs) And so to think about how many small decisions so many people made, I'm so grateful that you're standing on the shoulders of so many people that came before you. Everyone nudged the needle just a little bit closer to where it is that you are. But I don't think people talk about these stories enough. Obviously, Elizabeth, you're like young and cool. Um, I'm Amar, you're also young Thank and you? yeah, you're also young and cool. I'm not cool and older, but also we have such different life trajectories, yet there's a fabric that's similar. 